Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm Ted Cupper. I'm John Perry. And today we're asking the question, what is techno-progressivism? So today I'm very excited to be here with our guest, Dr. James Hughes, who both co-founded and now serves as Executive Director of the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies. He holds a doctorate in sociology and lectures on health policy at Trinity College. And he's the author of Citizen Cyborg, Why Democratic Societies Must Respond to the Redesigned Human of the Future. Dr. James Hughes, welcome to the podcast. Delighted to be here. So on this podcast, we talk a lot about radical future technologies. And in discussing these topics, we, you know, we can't help but again and again run into issues of policy and governance and one of the things that excites me about your work is that you really seem to be focused on this overlap between, you know, far futurism and policy. Um, but, but specifically where I want to begin today is that recently in Paris, uh, I understand you were involved in the drafting of a techno-progressive declaration that states the core principles of a political stance called techno-progressivism. So perhaps you could start by just helping us to understand, you know, what this term means and its origins. Well, uh, to do that, I need to rewind a little bit of my own uh, history. I came out of the left, and I'm still consider myself a man of the left. Um, and when I realized that I was also a futurist and a techno-optimist and what we now call a transhumanist, which was about 25 years ago, I hooked up with the uh, transhumanists as they were at the time, the extropian mailing list. And uh, that was not a, a pleasant meeting because the extropians at the time, back in the early 90s on the internet, were dominated by uh, libertarians and anarcho-capitalists. So we didn't have a very pleasant conversation. And um, I realized that I needed to find my uh, intellectual ancestry and kin and knew that the left uh, was, had not always been Luddite uh, in the way that it was today, or as Luddite as it is today. Um, and so I started a number of projects, one of which was eventually the Change Surfer radio program, and then um, hooking up with the World Transhumanist Association, which was much more politically diverse than the extropians. And through those different investigations, I began to uh, discover uh, an intellectual lineage that goes back to at least the Enlightenment of uh, people like Condorcet, who uh, was one of the French revolutionaries who contributed to the Enlightenment thinking of the French Revolution, and who was also what we would now call a transhumanist. He believed that technology would eventually eliminate death, eliminate work, uh, eliminate slavery, eliminate ignorance, you know. Um, and so that, that lineage has been there. And so what I consider techno-progressivism to be is just the kind of contemporary application of that combination of ideas from the Enlightenment of techno-optimism, uh, faith in human reason, with uh, ideas about democracy, human emancipation, egalitarianism, and so forth, that, that nexus of memes that occurred in the French Revolution. Um, it, it needs a new name today because the left has lost a lot of those, that faith and reason and that techno-optimism. Sometimes for good reasons, because, you know, the 20th century gave us plenty of reasons to be suspicious of unbridled techno-optimism or unbridled faith in human reason. Sure. And so there are a lot of legitimate critiques to be made. 
And I think that the, the techno progressives have, uh, uh, in general, the ones I know, uh, are able to incorporate the, that uh, understanding of history. It's also a term that uh, grew up out of the last decade of attempting to build a transhumanist movement um, and realizing that transhumanism and, and the various other allied movements around transhumanism, futurism and so forth, um, is just too shallow a set of memes to uh, build a, move, a political movement around. If you simply believe that it's good for people to have access to cognitive enhancement drugs, but the people in the room, uh, one group wants to eliminate democratic states altogether and have no drug uh, and device regulation, and the other side of the room wants to have drug and device regulation and a national health care regime that would make it accessible to everyone cognitive enhancement <laughs> drugs, well, you're not going to get very far with your political program. I mean, you're, you agree about one thing, but you don't agree about a lot of other important right. things. And that's been the nature of our uh, experience within transhumanism. So when we started the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies 10 years ago, that was in the context of the growing realization that to have a public policy framework to work in, in uh, out of transhumanism, that we needed to have at least some, some other basic agreements about the legitimacy of democratic states and the need to have drug and device regulation and universal access and so forth. That uh, was also the time that I had written my book, uh, Citizen Cyborg, in which I argued for democratic transhumanism. That term never caught on with anybody but me, but... Um, but then quickly the term techno-progressivism became descriptive uh, for some people within the IET of, of the position that we were carving out. And, um, and that's what we've run with so far. Now there's a lot of other terms out there, social futurism is being promoted by Amon Twyman. And, and uh, as I say, the, the ideas aren't particularly novel. So you could just say, you know, <laughs> traditional left-wing thinking or something like that. Right, but, right. Um, but it does express a certain nexus of concerns about human enhancement, life extension, existential risks, and so forth. Things that are of contemporary concern to the transhumanist and futurist community that, and that are points of contention often within in our participation in left and uh, socially progressive social movements. We want to kind of get maybe specific about some of the, the platform of techno-progressivism as defined by that declaration. And one issue that we talk about a lot on the podcast is technological unemployment, and that often leads to discussions of unconditional basic income. And my understanding is that the techno-progressive platform is in support of that idea. And that's a very old idea, but of course, in America, it doesn't get discussed very often these days. Or not very seriously. Anymore. Yeah, and... Uh, although it seems to be resurfacing a little bit. And I, I wonder what, how you feel about the current debate or lack of debate on that issue and how to go about selling an idea like unconditional basic income to people in this country? I think we're really at a tipping point for this particular idea, for both the, the realizations around technological unemployment uh, as an inevitability and the realization that basic income guarantee is a desirable social policy. Um, we're probably at the same point with this debate that we were with gay marriage maybe 15 years ago, where you know, people, the, the tipping was beginning and, and we just couldn't foresee how quickly it was all going to fall into place. There, we've had a decline in the proportion of Americans who are in paid employment since 2000. We had a steady increase up to the year 2000 and it's been steadily decreasing since 2000. Now, part of that 
is the demographic shift of baby boomers beginning to retire. Um, but that's an important part of our techno-progressive analysis of the situation. You know, that you know, as good social uh, futurists, we should be looking at all the dimensions of the situation, not just the technological. The demographic dimension is that we're going to have this big bulge of older people who are going to, in the current way that we do pensions and retirement and old age, they're going to be becoming dependent on the social welfare state uh, working, you know, stop working. And um, that's a part of this picture. And the other part is that technology is going to increasingly and probably from our perspective um, exponentially begin to erode human employability. And so there aren't very many public policies that, you know, we've done a, a recent special issue of the Journal of Evolution and Technology where we published one very comprehensive review of all the public possible public policies that could uh, address technological unemployment if it begins to emerge more uh, clearly as we think it will. And, you know, so the first things that people may say is, well, we could ban some technologies. You know, in New Jersey, you're not allowed to pump your own gas. You have to have a gas attendant pump your gas. Well, that that's going to be pretty annoying to people, especially if the cost and efficiency and quality advantages of the new technologies uh, completely outstrips the ability of humans to provide them. So, you know, if we say you have to go to a human travel agent in order to book your Expedia tickets <laughs> when you could have just done it yourself, well, people are not going to put up with that very long. Or you could say, you know, that um, we should, could start sh shrinking the work week, which I think is a good policy and it's and certainly one that um, has been proposed for a long time. Shrink the work week, shrink the work year, and shrink the work life. Shrink the work life by extending um, the period of education, subsidizing education longer, um, not extending the uh, retirement age, but maybe actually moving it forward a little bit. That, that would be a way to shrink the work life. Shrinking the work year would be to have more days of vacation, more paid family leave and so forth, which Americans are, of course, in need of. Um, and then shrinking the work week would be having like a 35-hour work week and then a 30-hour work week and so forth. Those would be good policies and those would do, have help ease us into uh, the situation that we're going to be entering. Mm -hmm. But eventually we have to say if we, if we have you know, fewer and fewer people who we can tax to support more and more people who are dependent on public services, then we need to have a whole renegotiation of the social contract around work, leisure, retirement, disability, uh, and so forth. And basic income is the most obvious solution to that. Yeah, that's how it seems to us. Although, uh, obviously, um, <laughs> as I've spoken about this idea to various people, I've discovered that it's not an obvious solution to a lot of people. And the objections you get to it are um, pretty standard. You hear people say that uh, no one will work. That's a common one. Or um, too expensive. Uh, that it's too expensive to provide. I've seen some back-of-the-envelope math that seems to bear that out, at least at today's current price levels for, for a living. And I don't know, I wonder um, what would you suggest is a good uh, rebuttal or argument to those kinds of uh, criticisms? Well, I mean, we start with the idea of redistributing the existing social welfare state. And certainly if you just take, you know, in the first place, getting hold of social security is going to be a huge political fight. So we're probably going to have to face serious political crises in most countries before 
you know, the basic idea of basic income gets established as a public policy. But at any rate, um, just if we took Social Security and disability uh, payments and all the other forms of social welfare that we do and redistributed those to everybody, yes, it'd be very meager, like, you know, $10,000 a year or $5,000 a year, whatever it is. And it wouldn't be a, a living wage for anybody. Um, uh, and not to mention that it would be inegalitarian. So one of the ideas that, of course, ends up being pretty much, if you're going to have progressive taxation on the other end of what people make, um, negative income tax is basically the same thing as a, as a basic income guarantee. Yeah. And that has been supported by people like Milton Friedman and, you know, all kinds of people on the right. And is much easier probably in the United States at any rate to implement. And the basic income guarantee would basically be that at below a certain level of income, you get that amount of money from the government and above a certain level of income, you get progressively taxed. And by implementing that kind of pivot point in our, in our taxation policy, um, we could begin to then move that pivot point up and up until it becomes more and more of a living wage. In terms of the, the fiscal side, you, people are absolutely right that we need to change how we support the democratic state. We are tax, undertaxed in the United States in terms of you know, what, all the public needs that we have. We know our, our bridges are falling down, our highways are underserviced, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And then we have all these human needs that will increasingly need to be met. So we need to increase progressive taxation on income. We also need to increase our exploitation of the licensing and sale of public goods, such as the airwaves, um, you know, one of the existing models of, of, of a basic income guarantee is the Alaska Revenue Fund from the petroleum resources right, that they right. have. And every Alaskan then gets three, four, five thousand dollars a year uh, uh, as a check on the basis of their co-ownership of the Alaskan oil revenue. And, that, and I think that that model could be extrapolated to all kinds of things in the United States and, and other countries. So, yeah, it's going to take some pretty serious reforms of the fiscal uh, climate, you know, for us to, to get there. But again, as Mitt Romney pointed out, you know, what did he say, 47% or 49% of Americans were moochers. And now it's even more because, you know, more and more people are being kicked out of the of employability uh, or aging out of employability. And when the tipping point becomes the majority of us being moochers, then, then we have to have that conversation. How do we make this egalitarian so that the 60 percent of us who are dependent on the 30 percent who are working, you know, that that's an, an equitable arrangement? Yeah, it would require a lot of cognitive dissonance to keep demonizing the moochers when we're rapidly growing as a force. Exactly. Well, despite that requirement, I actually think it's relatively likely to be possible. I mean, given, I think right now people have a strong tendency to think of themselves as being the makers, not the takers, regardless of their actual position in the world. And uh, I, I think it's actually going to be very easy to continue demonizing those people, especially for people with a right-wing uh, political orientation who you know, think of themselves as valuing hard work and uh, sort of subscribe to that Calvinist sort of worldview that like you kind of get what you deserve. Um, I, I, I worry about that, honestly, because I think that uh, that framing is um, is so hard to get around. And I, I worry that uh, people who consider themselves moochers will vote against their own interests and vote to keep the 30 percent who are still working, uh, you know, above them because they think it's somehow fair. 
or something. Well, you raised two interesting. In the first place, it's very easy to find people today, Tea Party people, who are on Medicare, sure. arguing that uh, that Obamacare should be abolished because it's socialism. Obamacare, which is basically a Republican idea that everybody should be obliged to buy private health insurance and that we can't have public health insurance at all. That's Obamacare. Sure. And, and people who are actually get public health insurance saying that Obamacare is socialism. So yes, you're absolutely right. You know, that kind of irrationality will persist. In the second place, you raised an interesting question, which is, you know, central to the techno-progressive kind of framing of, of the political world, which is, are, are people on the left more rational than people on the right? And if you look at the work of people like Chris Mooney, who he's a journalist, but he brings to, he's written several books about this now, and many political uh, sociologists and social psychologists are working on this this question. Um, I think that there there is a basic um, personality and and even neurological difference between people who have a more liberal or left wing orientation. I'm not talking about Marxist Leninists or you know some of the hardcore forms of leftism, which end up looking a lot like right wing thinking, but generally the kind of liberal to conservative spectrum in democratic societies, people who are more liberal tend to uh, think more rationally, use more of their neocortex and less of their amygdala to make political decisions. And this is a big problem. It's one of the reasons for um, us talking past each other is that people on the left tend to be trying to use reason and people on the right are saying, as Stephen Colbert famously said, I don't care what the facts are. I feel it in my gut. Right, right. And I think, you know, to some extent you can, um, you can even defend that point of view. Uh, but it does make it very hard to make political progress. And of course, many of us in the futurist community are also interested in rationalism and, uh, you know, try, trying to trick ourselves into being more rational or, uh, or at least researching ways in which we're irrational so we know more about that. And uh, interestingly, as I'm thinking about that community, that community is like heavily libertarian, is it not? Uh, that yes. rationalist community. And yes, exactly. so I don't know, that may be... They're a minority group overall, but uh, yeah. but there's definitely there's a strong contingent of people that are clearly focused on rationalism and reason, but are also extremely right-wing, at least on economic issues. Well, if you look at John Haidt's work on political psychology, it's fascinating. He His original model was that there were five basic moral intuitions, fairness, uh, non-harming, and then those were the two that were common among people on the left. And then people on the right, more common moral intuitions were the importance of hierarchy, the importance of in-group solidarity, and the importance of sacred values. And, and I think that, that model works great. And there's a lot of neuroscientific research that kind of underwrites the why we have, why we've inherited those kind of primate mammalian moral intuitions. So when he came up with that model, he was basically on a left-right spectrum. And then the libertarians started to complain, say, well, what about us? Where are we on this spectrum? Because we're not, you know, that doesn't fit us. Right. So he started to test them and he said, well, it turns out that you guys don't respond to any of the moral intuitions. <laughs> <laughs> You're basically morally tone deaf. Yeah. And, um, and, then he, and then as a kind of bone to them in his most recent book, he came up with a sixth moral intuition, which is the freedom moral intuition. So libertarians only respond to one moral intuition. That's <laughs> get off my back, Jack. Right, um, right. So, yes, I mean, libertarians are a very specific psychological and neurolo probably neurological phenomenon in our society. I mean, it's, it's a politics for, you know, 13 to 21-year-old boys. It's not a politics for adults. 
Well, that's probably going to anger some people, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, obviously, I mean, there's a lot of overlap though, too, I think between, you know, libertarians and, and progressives on, on social issues. Right. So, I mean, yeah. there's some common ground to forge. It's just these, you know, issues of basic income and taxation and stuff become super contentious and hard to, hard to deal with. Right. Although you will find libertarians who are in favor of basic income as well, because they find it to be preferable to an alphabet soup of government bureaucracies. Right. I mean, it, it depends on less whether, of an anti state if we just right. gave people money. It's less, it's, yeah. It's a less, yeah, less um, paternalistic way of providing aid. So if you buy the basic premise that aid is necessary, which not all libertarians do, you might prefer that um, in the same way that you might expect uh, traditional conservatives to prefer Obamacare over Social Security uh, or Medicare, as we were just talking about. Um, <laughs> but then again, uh, tribalism is important to everyone. And if it's not coming from your camp, uh, sometimes it's hard to you know, support things, even, even things you ought to support. So that's interesting. Let's talk um, about the techno-progressive agenda for life extension. This is something sure. that a big topic for us and it's a major motivator for me personally what is the techno progressive stance on that well again if you go back to condorcet uh, he imagined that we'd eventually eliminate death um, william godwin the anarchist uh, philosopher mm -hmm. in the early part of the 19th century imagined we would eliminate death this has been old enlightenment vision that you know the progress of science and medicine would eventually bring us radical longevity and i think that the kind of the contemporary political context that we face is that we need to have these Apollo projects or Manhattan projects uh, committed to the project of understanding the biological processes of aging and how to reverse them. Uh, we need to get that public financing. Private uh, financing is not attracted to this prospect yet. Um, you know, they don't see the the payoff uh, as being as, as certain enough. So. Uh, we've called this project the Longevity Dividend Project because most people in public policy are terrified of the prospect of more old people. Uh, when Social Security was implemented, fewer than half of all uh, Americans would uh, would you know see 65. Would live to and, see it? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, would oh, survive wow. that long. Wow. And now the you know people are surviving to 80 and, and 90 years old, and so we have a lot more folks who are going to be dependent on the welfare state, and that's called the old age dependency ratio. The old age dependency ratio in Europe is even more extreme because they not only have good longevity, because they have good public health, but also they have even lower fertility right. um, for mostly religious and cultural reasons, but um, also the longer you live, the shorter your, the fewer children you have. So there's the, a lot of complicated things going on. but. Uh, Europe is having declining population and a growing old age dependency ratio. Yeah. Um, and uh, Japan is going to face this very severely. China is going to hit it in about 30 years. We're going to hit it too, but not quite as bad because we're more religious. So um, religious folks tend to have more kids and we have more Hispanic immigrants and they tend to have more kids and so forth. But even those folks are having fewer kids. So all around the world, we expect to see this growing old age dependency ratio problem. Um, so when you talk to public policy folks and you say, hey, why don't we invest a lot of public resources in allowing people to live radically longer, that terrifies them. <clears throat> so what you need to do is frame it in a way that shows that it's not only a good for us each individually to live longer, but that it can be good for society. 
Um, one of the ways it's good for society is that the old age dependency problem is principally a problem of the costs of nursing and medical care. That, you know, an old person who needs 24-7 nursing can cost, you know, fifty dollars to $100,000 a year. Um, a person who doesn't need that kind of nursing can cost maybe $5,000 a year in medical costs with various kinds of chronic ailments of old age. And if you could get rid of those chronic ailments of old age, they could not only not cost the state, but they could actually participate in some form, maybe paid or unpaid, in a way that contributes to society instead of being dependent and pulling potentially their wife or their daughter or their sister or somebody else out of the job market to take care of them. So there are a lot of derivative benefits of healthy longevity. And that's, I think, the way to frame the goal here is that we don't want more, more old sick people. We want more young-ish, healthy older people. And those older people would cost the state a lot less and potentially contribute to society in ways that would be self-sustaining. Yeah, I really like that framing of, um, of healthy longevity. I think immediately most people's minds when you talk to them about life extension go to, you know, just giant old age homes full of comatose uh, grandmas. And, uh, you know, if you can get the image in their mind that this is going to be a healthful, productive part of life, then all of a sudden their attitude changes. Uh, but that's always hard to get across because, you know, what we have now is that we have technologies that will help you live a few years longer, but don't really make your quality of life all that much better. Uh, and what we're, you know, obviously all hoping for uh, as a result of these technologies is that um, that things will get actually healthier and not just longer. Um, or at least that's the goal we should be striving for and at least putting more resources into. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it always astonishes me when I talk to people about life extension and they say, what would you do with more than 80 years? And it's like, my God, how limited must your vision of your life be? <laughs> right. It's like... You know, I, I try, I've tried to learn seven languages and I failed at all of them. If I had another decade or two, maybe I could make another start and try to actually learn Chinese. You know, how many novels or are, are, are books or hard, you know, cardcover books are sitting in my library that I've never even touched after buying them? How many movies might I like to see? How many countries have I not visited? How many people have I not met in this planet? You know, to think that 80 years is enough to live any life is absurd. Agreed, completely. I could definitely do with another 80 right after... I mean, you know, just even if I was just going to do the whole thing over again. Right. <laughs> I'd do yeah. everything better. <laughs> and we don't necessarily need yeah, to... I, I just, by the way, I just saw Groundhog's Day, and it's a fan, <laughs> and of course it's a fantastic movie. And one of the things, it's both a transhumanist meditation in my book and a Buddhist meditation. It's Buddhist for a variety of reasons. But the transhumanist part is the notion that you would have ennui if you had to, you know, to continue living your life. And, and in the first place, we're not going to force anybody to continue living. No transhumanist is imagining any technology that would make dying impossible but right, or if illegal you just continued living would people start to experience ennui well what he discovers in grand dog's days i think what we would all discover is that in even living the same day over and over again you would be able to find more and more interesting things to do and that, that was the greatest part of that movie yeah yeah, when you're healthy, I mean, the, the ceiling is super high in terms of, you know, things to spend your time on. Um, but uh, why don't we move on? Um, to, there's a bunch of other parts of the techno-progressive platform, uh, reproductive rights, uh, reforming drug laws, things aimed towards, you know, helping disabled groups or, you know, gender minorities and so on. Um one of the things that's mentioned on the list is is digital rights, um, which is 
a topic that we get into a lot on this podcast that we're super interested in. Um, it's it's mentioned in the declaration, but it's mentioned kind of in passing. So I, I wanted to see if how much that's been discussed as part of the platform. Like, does the platform include a position on net neutrality, for example, or copyright and patent reform? And is there a possibility of, you know, forging a link within techno progressivism to the work of people like Lawrence Lessig, or at least his earlier work, or Cory Doctorow, and some of the people that are that are fighting these digital rights battles? Well, certainly that was the implication there. I mean, I'm a very close follower of Corey's work, and and um, and have, I'm proud to say that he's happy about my work too. So uh, we're mutually admiring, uh, though he's far more <laughs> far more productive than I am. But um, uh, in terms of the digital rights movement, it's a part, the first thing to say is that. Part of the techno-progressive initiative is to understand that we are not primarily a pressure group within transhumanism or futurism. We happen to, all many of us have roots in that milieu, but that our primary um, audience should be the broader social movements that actually are working to change the world in very tangible ways that have unfortunately come under uh, a kind of Luddite influence from, for a variety of reasons since World War II. Right, right. And so we, we, ha- we have a dialogue to have with those movements about what it means to be truly free and emancipated human beings. So uh, with the reproductive rights movement, you know, they focused a lot on contraception and abortion, but they haven't uh, been very comfortable about talking about genomic choice or artificial uh, reproductive technologies and so forth. Uh, with the disability rights movement, they see anything about human enhancement as being another step towards the gas chamber. And we have to say, no, no, we're actually on the same page with you about morphological freedom. Yes, we think people should have a right to make their kids as able-bodied as possible, but that doesn't mean that we want to put any person with a disability in the gas chamber. Um, With digital rights, it's a lot easier because there's very little Luddism in that milieu. (laughs) Um, we've actually had some people involved in the pirate parties who were prominent transhumanists as well in this, one of the prominent Swedish pirate party founders was a transhumanist. And, and so there's been some discussion about the pirate parties being a political vehicle for transhumanism. But I mean, the, the problem is that the, the digital rights movement itself is not a sufficient, just like transhumanism, in my opinion, is not a sufficient, uh, uh, sufficiently broad set of issues to actually be the basis of a political party. It, it has worked a little bit as a kind of political leverage in Europe, but um, in terms of, you know, actually addressing any broader set of social concerns, I don't think it does that. But um, yes, so what's the relationship? I mean, basically, there's a there's a fundamental set of uh, freedom claims or emancipatory claims in the Enlightenment, rights to control your body, to control your brain, to control the way you think, freedom of expression, uh, rights to have the kinds of children that you want to have. And we think that, um, you know, clearly the digital rights movement is uh, is about expanding the rights to expression and, and, uh, and personal control over your own kind of intellectual property, as opposed to the overreach of intellectual property that seems to be screwing up the commons. What do you think is the most pressing or what are the most pressing specific issues that we need to work the hardest on today? I mean, because a lot of the a lot of this stuff is speculative around technologies that don't actually exist yet. And clearly we should be planning for those. Uh, But what right now do you think is the most urgent? Do you think it's 
I mean, we've mentioned some things like technological unemployment. I don't know if that's the candidate that would fit that mold. But what, what do you think is most important? Today, technological unemployment is not that easy to talk about in the United States because we're adding jobs. Um, but I, I think you and I and, and most futurists see that as a short-term thing. That's like saying that because it's cold outside today that global warming isn't happening. Um, and so you want to mention uh, that it's very warm term, outside today. <laughs> say what? I just wanted to it mention is? that it's very, very warm outside today here in, in, in Los, Los Angeles, Angeles in the yeah, winter. Yeah. It's uh, <laughs> it's a heat wave right now. <laughs> well, here in Connecticut, it's quite cold. <laughs> but um, so uh, it may not be the thing to talk about today. But um, in the short term, I think uh, establishing this conversation around technological unemployment. I was very encouraged, by the way. About six months ago, we participated in a. Um, in a confab at Singularity University, which has been a libertarian hotbed, um, uh, with a bunch of different kinds of folks, big tech heavies, um, to talk about technological unemployment. And it was chaired by uh, Diamandis, who's of course a libertarian. And he asked the 30 or 40 of us gathered there what policy we, whether we all thought technological unemployment was inevitable, and most of us did, you know, like 95% of us. And then he asked what pu public policy we thought was the most logical to promote, and 60% of us were for basic income guarantee. And he was astonished. Um, and so that led to a great deal of optimism that, um, you know, when we engage futurists seriously with public policy, that we're going to have a very fruitful conversation. But the problem is that nobody in D.C. currently wants to talk about the social policy implications of life extension or technological unemployment or any of these kinds of technologies. There are some, you know, there are some futurists who work for the CIA or for the DOD who write about this stuff, you know, what's the world going to be like in 2035? And they say, well, when we all have cognitive enhancement and life extension and you know, nanobots in our back pockets, then the world's going to look like this. But nobody in you know, the health and human services is talking about that. Sure. So we have to have that conversation. We have to get that uh, promoted. Um, I think, I mean, part of the issue is that we, it's very difficult to predict what issues are going to crystallize this, this, the next big thing. You know, like for instance, I'll give you an example that when bioethics, we thought that the issues of who gets to decide to pull the plug for a spouse and what brain death meant was decided in the 90s or the 80s. And then Terry Schiavo comes along in the late 2000s and all of a sudden the governor and the legislature of Florida is intervening and, and uh, right-wing and left-wing folks are demonstrating against pulling Terry Schiavo's plug and then the Congress gets involved. And the whole kind of consensus seemed to fall apart. Right. Um, it's very difficult to know when, you know, it might be that we get a, like a genetically engineered animal or we get a, a nano plague or we get a, a semi-autonomous car that runs over some kid. Or, you know, who, who knows what the issues are going to be? So we kind of have to keep a, a broad perspective and um, maintain a, a strategic focus so that when these issues arise, we can put them in the right context, mobilize whatever we can around them, make the right kinds of arguments, intervene in the media and politically in the, in the most opportunistic way. Sure. <laughs> opportunistic, I said, in the most opportune way. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I was about to say, I completely understand the point about uh, you know, political expediency, and you're absolutely right that you know, external events often create what's possible in, in pragmatic everyday politics. But I want to kind of right. throw the question right back at you again and just say, like, 
assuming for a moment that it's not caused by some external crisis, uh, which of, of all these issues do you think um, would be the best for us to be, uh, to be focusing on? I mean, what do, at the end of the day, what do you think is most important today, not five years or 10 years from now, of, of these things that we're talking about? If you could pick one thing to have a, an opportune moment for, what would it be? Well, I think most transhumanists would agree that if we could live long enough, we could experience most of the other benefits that we look forward to. Mm -hmm. So life extension seems to be at the top of the list, not only in terms of uh, a political agenda, personal agenda, um, but also in terms of its radical effects on society and its popularity. I mean, it, of all the things that we talk about and advocate for, um, life extension is probably the most popular. When Americans were polled about this last year by Pew, 80% of Americans wanted uh, the benefits of radical longevity therapies when they became available. 60% of, of Americans, however, were certain that they would only be available to the rich. So, you know, the, right now, if you don't have uh, access to health care in the United States, well, you know, with Obamacare, that fewer and fewer people don't, but um, if, you don't, if you haven't had life insurance in the past, your life expectancy is five, ten years shorter, maybe. But in the future, with longevity therapies, that gap between the rich and the poor could be decades um, or more, and you know, increasing. So we need to, I think, work on uh, both the research, fundamental research on longevity. That is one of the issues that will, as a, a kind of platform basis. Uh, will allow us to establish majoritarian support for a lot of things, and then universal access in combination with that. So that's the, the beginning point. But of course, then it, there's some other assumptions about the world that go along with saying, well, we have to live long enough to, to get there. Um, there's a lot of folks worried about catastrophic risks. Um, and I don't count myself among the singularitarians. I think there's a lot of millennialist and apocalyptic, uh, bi you know, cognitive bias in the way that people think about um, artificial intelligence and, and uh, the singularity. But um, I think in general, catastrophic risks uh, have to be at least, you know, close to the top of the, of the agenda. Um, and again, very few people argue that we shouldn't be worried about uh, the remaining nukes in the world or the possibilities of catastrophic uh, pandemic diseases, uh, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the, we futurists have a set of things to add to that list that I <laughs> do think we should be adding. And artificial intelligence, the, the potential, uh, you know, building, a, uh, the way I would frame it is that we need to build uh, a global electronic infrastructure that's resilient to all the different forms of electronic um, uh, interference that can that can be wreaked. So both uh, cyber theft, cyber warfare, as well as forms of artificial life and artificial intelligence that might go rogue. All of those things need to be prepared for by having a more resilient electronic infrastructure. So I think that those things have to be uh, closer to the top of the list. And depending on how survivalist I am, when I wake up in the morning, I sometimes put that above life extension. Huh. Um, and then I think after that, uh, you know, the issues around genomic choice and cognitive enhancement, those tend to be the most controversial. And the immediate social benefits right now seem to be the least arguable and that, or the least uh, defensible. And that, 
you know, very few people can afford in vitro fertilization. So until we have a widespread um, access to some cheap uh, gene therapy or way of doing sperm sorting or something like that, that would be uh, effective for, you know, dramatically changing your progeny's prospects. I don't think that there's going to be much um, capital to be to be focus a lot of energy on genomic choice, although we have mm -hmm. to defend it. Right. And similarly with cognitive enhancement, you know, the uh, purported benefits of modafinil or, I mean, I, I'm, I believe we should deregulate modafinil, we should deregulate uh, methylphenidate and Adderall and so forth. The, the benefits to their widespread access far outweigh the risks. Um, but the benefits aren't so huge that it's like we're going to double the economic productivity if we, you know, give everybody Adderall. So, right, right. Uh, you know, I, I think life extension and catastrophic risks are probably at the top of the list and then everything else someplace below. There's definitely like a strain of the futurist community that seems to focus so much on the existential risk, you know, almost to the exclusion of other things. You know, why should we really even talk about technological unemployment if, you know, we're all 10 going to years be killed by a giant right, computer robot. 10 years out, you know, we're just all going to die anyways. Um, like I say, I think there's a lot of cognitive bias in that community. They're, they act in the first place. A lot of them act like they're part of a religious sect um, and they think like they're part of a religious sect. And if you look back at 999, the year 999, there were a lot of people who thought the end of the world was nigh and they stopped plowing their fields and, you know, they sometimes they burned down the local church and, you know, prepared for the end of times. But you, you see that same kind of apocalyptic strain. I think it leads to both cognitive constraints in, in terms of how they imagine the disruptive potentials of artificial intelligence occurring. So they, as you say, they dismiss uh, the importance of something like technological unemployment because they what they imagine is that it's going to be some demon that's going to jump out of their laptop and take over the world instead of it being a slow accretion of technological changes that that gradually changes the world. And even if it is something that jumps out of your laptop, it might not be uh, a super god. I mean, this is again the 13 to 20 year old male, uh, uh, you know, framing that, oh, if I could be super powerful, what I'd do is take over the world. And <laughs> Instead, you know, most of the animals on the planet, you know, the, the things that plague us the most are microscopic to the size of rats, you know, or feral dogs or things like that, you know. And so artificial life that jumps out of your laptop and acts like a feral dog could be incredibly disruptive, um, uh, you know, if it starts to breed in the intertubes. Um, and it doesn't have to want to take over the world and, you know, turn everything into computronium. It might just want to eat gnawed things, you know. So, um, and that's, so I think that, yeah, that it leads to a variety of, of, of biases. And it fits in as a kind of elective affinity with libertarianism because in the first place, they all think they're smarter than anybody involved in public policy or governance. Uh, so no one in governance or public policy could ever really understand what what computer people do, and therefore they couldn't possibly come up with a regulation that would work. Um, and in the second place, they think since it's going to happen in about 10 seconds flat, there's nothing that anybody can actually do about it except be the first one to build the super robot that protects us from the bad super robots. And I think that's just, that's silly. It's just silly thinking. Although I think you would agree, right, that there's, it's like a non-zero probability, these fears, right? So it's just that we shouldn't necessarily focus on, you know, one 
existential risk scenario to the exclusion of all these other issues. But, uh, you know, uh, ask Nick Bostrom. There are lots of non-zero probabilities out there. One of the non-zero probabilities is that we're all living in a simulation and it's about to be turned off. So, you know, let's work on that one. Or a <laughs> right, non-zero right. probability that we're, there's going to be a gamma ray burst in a nearby supernova and it's going to wipe out all life in this galaxy. Sure, you know? sure. So there's not, nothing to do about some of these things. So, you know, in terms of, you know, the, partic the, the particular strategy that I would argue around the catastrophic risks of artificial intelligence, as I said, building a resilient internet, uh, discussing things like having internet off switches, which some countries have, you know, North Korea <laughs> has one tube that goes into North Korea, um, and they, they have an internet off switch. So uh, I, it's not a particularly attractive possibility. It, it gives powers to government that I'm not particularly comfort, comfortable with. But if we take seriously the, the possibility that there might be some kind of rogue a life that would threaten human civilization, then we need to talk about having those kinds of switches. Um, we need to talk about the regulation of dangerous uh, technological research. I mean, we already have a global internet interdiction regime set up to try to figure out who's doing bad nuclear weapons, you know, as opposed to the good nuclear weapons research, who's doing the bad nuclear weapons research like Iran and North Korea. And we have had zero success so far uh, preventing the, uh, because we don't have sufficiently powerful transnational institutions, that's another part of the picture here, is we need stronger transnational institutions, stronger transnational technological uh, agreements, so that we can begin to actually not only identify, but actually intervene to prevent the development of cat global catastrophic risk-making technologies, which includes not only uh, chemical, biological, and uh, nuclear weapons, but also potentially nanotechnology and artificial intelligence. And talk, try talking to anybody in computer science about the, the prospect of having global regulation of artificial intelligence risks, and they just laugh at you. Um, and, and granted, it's a very difficult prospect to to you know, wrap your mind around how it would actually occur since, it occurs, since artificial intelligence research occurs in so many different places. But you know, as I've said to Ben Gertzels, the first day somebody takes him seriously about what he's actually trying to do, he's going to be locked up in the basement of the DOD. <laughs> yeah, maybe that, uh, that surfer-like uh, persona that he projects is all just a ruse to keep him. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't want them to take him seriously. Yeah, exactly. He wants to keep doing his research. So yeah, he's if, got if the they most think he's harmless. casual way of saying the most like disturbingly bold predictions. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so there's a couple more issues too that I want to ask you about before we wrap up. Um, so let's talk about building consensus with the other groups of the left right, um, right. and specifically how to do that. Uh, I think, you know, as you've pointed out, s some of them are even, you know, like the environmental movement or, you know, some of them are even actually opposed to sort of the techno optimistic perspective and something needs to be done to sort of bring those people in. So can you talk about the variety of people on the left, some of whom are struggling to get comfortable with technology and, and how to go about stitching together. Yeah, like basically just how do, can we combat Luddism on the left? I mean, I, you said, and I think this is really interesting, that this movement is not so much about changing people's minds within futurism. It's more about changing people's minds within the existing traditional left, uh, particularly here in America, where we have a kind of strange coalition of social justice advocates, poverty elimination advocates, environmentalists, uh, people are interested in minority rights, 
people are interested in immigrant rights, um, uh, and of course labor, <laughs> um, uh, which is a shrinking source of power. And and how how do you suppose we yeah how do we reach out to them and uh, get them to accept technological intervention as a means of uh, achieving achieving their goals? Well, in the first place, you recognize that within each of those different social movements, there are. Uh, techno-optimistic uh, predecessors and strains of thought that can be mobilized and, and referenced and, uh, and and built upon. So within labor, there are you know people going back, as I said, to the Enlightenment who have laborish concerns or who were actual labor union leaders or builders or socialist leaders who uh, looked forward to the project of eliminating work altogether. It becomes a lot harder when you're actually, you know, representing a group of existing workers and right. your, tr your trade union is funded by their, you know, money taken out of their wages to say, we want to eliminate your jobs. That, that becomes a, a very hard thing to say. And this gets back to an old debate within the left is the difference between sectoral interests versus vanguard intellectuals. I see the techno-progressives as, as playing a, a vanguard intellectual role. We're kind of like the Fabians were, and, and in fact, I think very similar to the Fabians in certain ways, uh, of the late uh, 19th century, early 20th century. They weren't labor organizers themselves, but they were the thinkers who, who established the ideas that then influenced the founding of the labor movement. In a similar way, and, and that helps overcome that interplay between vanguard intellectuals and a political party helps overcome the sectoral interests and the um, the kind of anti-general interests of some of these movements. So in the case of the labor movement, you need someone to say like, no, you know, you really should come to the negotiating table because even if you do win, you know, more money in your package this month, it's bad for society in this these particular ways. That's the, the role of a labor party our social democratic party to to influence how labor negotiates for its position. Mm -hmm. In this case, you know, the vanguard intellectual role of techno progressives is to try to build this conversation about what the future of the economy looks like and how people who are interested in the future of, of labor rights can roll with these waves of change and continue to protect people who are being exploited in different ways build new technological means of reaching out to them and so forth. Um, I think that that conversation can be had and there, and there are people who have done it in the past. With uh, reproductive rights, as I said, there are many women who uh, are staunch on you know, women controlling their bodies, but when it comes to something like sex selection, they suddenly say, oh, no, no, we can't do that. Well, we have to say, well, isn't it you know, a little odd to say that the way to protect women's rights is to deny actual existing women the right to know the contents of their own womb and to make a choice about whether to continue a pregnancy to ensure that every boy in 20 years from now will have a date to the prom. Is that really the way that you want to protect women's rights today? You know, or isn't making sure that every woman can, t can control the contents of their own womb the really primary right? Um, that's the same argument with the disability rights community. One of the principal flashpoints with, with them is prenatal choice. Um, which they see as threatening, you know, uh, disability rights, and it's like, and or cochlear implants or other kinds of therapies which might um, uh, actually eliminate certain disabilities in society. They see that as a threat to their communities, and you have to say, well, are you more interested in making sure that there are X percent of the population who's deaf or who have Down syndrome in the future? Or are you more interested in making sure that um, every disabled person has the full capabilities 
uh, of their life available to them that's that's possible because we're on the same page if that's your concern right, but if right. You, what you want to do is make sure that there's five percent of the population in perpetuity who has down syndrome <laughs> well we can't go there right well we're not on 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 that and that that's so interesting because that seems like it's um you know it's a kind of a perverse incentive for existing uh interest groups that well that's they, analogous to the labor one it's analogous right? to labor thing right exactly they have a uh, some incentive to keep people in, say, poorly paid labor jobs or continue having a certain percentage of, um, you know, ex-disability in the population be- because that's their interest group. That's who's funding them. That's who's sending them to Washington to go. That's their entire existence. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, I mean, think about uh, as far as uh, assistive technologies, think about eyeglasses, right? I can see on the video you're wearing eyeglasses. Both John and I are are wearing eyeglasses right now. None of us considers ourselves disabled, um, but of course we all three of us are, and we're using a very old assistive technology that's just been completely accepted by society to the point where that disability has disappeared, essentially. It's not even considered a disability anymore. And if I were somebody who was representing, say, paraplegics or deaf people, uh, deaf people is maybe a good analogy because of the cochlear implants uh, uh, improving recently, I'd be worried about that. Maybe I, <laughs> I could see, I could see that position of being worried. Oh no, we're going to go down in numbers and then we're going to stop being a thing that anyone cares about. Um, right. Uh, so yeah, I think we have to um, reassure those people that we are in fact on their side and that we want to give them more choice, not less choice. I think actually the language of libertarianism, if not the policy is works well here where you basically say, well, it's about, you know, it's about the person you, you have access to the technology you can make the choice, uh, whether that's prenatal choice or whether it's the choice to accept a particular... It's not just the libertarian emphasis, though, because it's also the positive rights aspect that comes from traditional social democratic thinking, which is that it's not just that you have the right to make that choice, to to use a wheelchair or not. Mm -hmm. It's that we want to make sure that you have access to a wheelchair. Right, you have the actual choice to really choose it. Right, right. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, so so something else that I wanted to ask you about is, you know, as far as trying to actually influence politics, uh, I mean, one way you can do that is to start a political party. And you mentioned before the the pirate party, which seems to be mostly a European phenomenon, as far as I can tell. Um, And then very recently, uh, Zoltan Isvan started this transhumanist party. I don't know that that's going to have much traction, but it's certainly of interest to me. Um, what do you make of that strategy, and, and what specifically do you make of those two parties and their influence? Uh, well, and the first thing to say is that uh, different political structures around the world lend themselves to party building as an exercise to different degrees. And this is an old debate within the left. Uh, first past the post-political systems like the United States um, really are structurally biased against third parties in ways that make it, you know, not very attractive to spend your energies that way. The most um, effective way, in my opinion, in first-past-the-post systems uh, to influence politics is to have political action committees, think tanks, uh, newspapers, interest groups, nonprofit organizations, and so forth, that then can work with multiple political parties or be caught, work with caucuses within political parties. And so I would love to see a, a transhumanist caucus or a techno-progressive caucus within the Democrats and maybe one within the Republicans. And maybe there would be certain issues that they could ally on, just as, you know, there are certain um, odd alliances that occur already around different issues. Sure. Um, in 
certain European countries or places like Israel. So Israel has like a 1%, you only have to get 1% of the vote uh, to get in proportional representation to get a representative in the, in the Knesset. And um, so they have a lot of small parties that represent odd things. Uh, Russia, I don't know if they've, maybe they've changed their laws now, but they have had that kind of a system. Italy has a 5% per, um, barrier, I think. And um, so there are countries like that where you could imagine uh, and where it's occurred that there's a feminist party, a, a pirate party, things like that, uh, that represent fairly narrow uh, concerns who get in and, and can represent that point of view and work with other folks who are sympathetic within that, that political framework. So there may be countries where a transhumanist or a techno-progressive political party is a good project. Um, now, to uh, Zoltan Isfan, I mean, if I, I can't imagine a worse representation <laughs> of transhumanism, and certainly he has nothing to do with techno-progressivism, uh, based on his own personal politics, but even more so on his novel, which is even worse politics than it is fiction. So, you know, Zoltan, uh, I have I've published some of the essays that he's written. He, he writes, writes widely, he's very productive, and sometimes uh, he finds, uh, a, you know, an opinion that I can uh, put on the IET website. But um, in terms of him being a representative of any of our politics, I think that that's disastrous. Um, and he's already uh, poisoned the well in certain ways because the right um, bioconservatives have been making great hay out of the things that he's been saying. Um, he's a good example of why we need techno-progressives to be you know, more forcefully organized because there is a great hunger now for transhumanists to actually get off of the uh, to, you know, get out of the salon and into the streets, and we need to be serious about what it means to have a transhumanist politics. Not everybody who raises a transhumanist flag is going to be worth supporting. Um, some people, there, there have been people from the far right who have tried to become transhumanist activists. You know, there was a group 15 years ago who were trying to organize a transhumanist green socialist uh, organization that was actually a neo-Nazi group. Um, so... <laughs> You know, we have to be pretty explicit about what the values are, the principles that we're defending. Um, I think a much more positive uh, thing has just happened in the UK. Um, Eamon Twyman, from the, um, he had been dabbling in creating this zero state thing, and, um, and uh, he and David uh, Wood, who's the leader of the London Futurists, and a group of other uh, established transhumanists in the UK, have come together around a fairly techno-progressive platform uh, as the basis of the UK Transhumanist Party. Now, UK is equally um, resistant to, they have three parties, but it's equally resistant to minor parties. They have a number of minor parties. They have the, like the, the honking madman's party that gets elected every once in a while, or you know, various, uh, they have a green party and so forth. Um, so it might be that uh, you know you could have a transhumanist elected to some council election or city borough election or something like that. That would be an interesting experiment in the UK. I think what's more ex interesting at this point is just that to get a bunch of us futurists and transhumanists together in a room together and try to hammer out this, these political ideas. And the result of the you know of course David and and uh, Eamon were both involved in writing the Techno-Progressive Declaration, so it's no surprise that the UK Transhumanist Party reflects a lot of those ideas. But, um, you know, I, I'd like to see that effort occur in other countries as well. <clears throat> the Italians 
of course, are very political. The French uh, group is very political. They're the ones who helped, the French group helped us write the De techno-progressive declaration in the first place, and they call themselves techno-prog because they uh, want to make that clear that they're techno-progressives. Um, you know, more troubling, you have, for instance, in Russia, um, you have three different factions of Russian transhumanists. So you have the pro-Putin transhumanists, the liberal transhumanists who are anti-Putin, and then you have the anarchist transhumanists. So in some places, like Russia, Italy, you already have transhumanists at each other's throat over politics. I'd, rather than having us be at each other's throat, I'd just like us to at least be explicit about what the different flavors are and say, you know, this, if we're going to organize this transhumanist party, is it going to have more of a techno-progressive flavor or more of a libertarian flavor? Are we going to try to combine the two somehow and get us both to work together? Or are we not going to do that? And we haven't had that conversation explicitly in the past. We've just tried to beat each other's brains out. Right. Well, and it's been such an apolitical movement, I think, too, for a lot of uh, its history. But th that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I mean, it's a sign of a mature movement, though, to actually yeah. be having these internal uh, fractures and discussions, you know. Sure. And right. I think it shows that it's getting more important because it's all of a sudden um, worth it to, <laughs> to, to hash out these differences because uh, there is a chance that we might actually influence real policy. There is a chance that we might be asked to weigh in on on actual political uh, questions which i think maybe was not the case even 20 years ago or something so well and this gets back me to the gets me back to the issue of what our focus should be should our focus primary focus be winning over other futurists i mean just to get people in the room to have this conversation we have to get some futurists interested but that's not the primary audience the primary audience is the larger policy intelligentsia out there who might be interested in these ideas that we put together. And there are people in academe and in public policy who have been paying attention to the futurist community. I mean, Kurzweil's had enormous influence in public, uh, in, in the futurist wing of, of the public policy intelligentsia. But there's a lot of openings. There, are, you know, I've been invited to DARPA DOD events. I've been invited to uh, French uh, parliamentary events. I've been invited to EU events, as have many of the people in the futurist community. There, are, there is an appetite for the things that we're talking about and the ways that we frame them, even if they're often skeptical, raise their eyebrows, think uh, that we're just, you know, one odd flavor that they've added to the mix. We often can be quite catalytic. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, the thing is that everybody can observe you know, how dramatically technology is affecting us and has been affecting us. It's getting harder and harder to deny, I think. Yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, I think it, people are just getting more receptive to these more radical ideas. And you mentioned Kurzweil. I think definitely he's done a lot to bring those to people. Of course, he's very weirdly apolitical in his writing. I mean, he's he always acknowledges, oh, well, and then there's problems to be worked out, but, you know, somehow they'll be worked out. Yeah, he, he's very hopeful that they'll be solved, but he doesn't really give you much indication of how he thinks that's going to happen. I guess it's outside of his right. area of expertise, so in some ways it's I mean, maybe, he's, maybe best. He's an it. engineer, so his kind of default is that engineering <clears throat> libertarianism, that everything's an engineering problem rather than a public policy problem. I thought a catalytic moment for him was, <clears throat> what, seven years ago, six years ago, when... Uh, folks published the genetic information of the 1918 flu online, and he and Bill Joy got together and published an op-ed saying that that should be banned, that no, no one should be able to publish the genetic uh, code of pathogens online. 
It's like, oh, suddenly you discover, you know, a, a role for the state in preventing <laughs> and mitigating catastrophic risks. It's like, maybe you could give this a more careful thought instead of just all of a sudden out of the blue deciding that the government should ban certain lines of scientific research, which, you know, even people who are worried about that in the scientific community said, well, we need to have a convention about this and discuss what the different ways of delaying the, you know, the publication of these. No, no, he just wants to ban it right out. And that's, that's the consequence of not taking seriously public policy. You don't look at all the different avenues that you have available to you to encourage or discourage the kinds of things that you're worried about. Yeah. Uh, is there anything else that you want to say that you feel like we should have asked you about but didn't? Well, I could talk about this stuff all day. So, <laughs> um, But I, I would say... Um, I'll just uh, plug the other things that I'm working on. Um, sure. The other project that I've been working on for a long time since my last book is Cyborg Buddha about uh, moral enhancement. And I think this is, uh, for me, probably addresses issues that are at the end. What I, I, I sometimes call the, uh, the current set of techno-progressive issues the talos of liberal democracy because... Um, we're trying to establish an, uh, an egalitarian and solidaristic and uh, uh, the best possible world for what comes next, the, the things that we can't imagine that come next. One of the things that's going to happen that, uh, that will ch fundamentally change our understanding of politics is when we truly have control over our brains. And when we do that, we're going to be able to edit our memories, share our memories, edit our most basic drives and feelings, apply those capabilities to the treatment of mental illness, social deviance, uh, political uh, or criminal uh, uh, deviance, and political deviance as well. And so we're going to face a world in which um, politics is fundamentally transformed. And now, you know, you, you can see us kind of stab at that in uh, Joss Whedon's um, dollhouse, where personalities are being copied back and forth between people and it just leads to you know a, a singularity chaos of a certain sort uh, in his in his uh, final chapters of that that TV drama um, and that's I think the big question that we face is what does it mean so one simple shorthanded way of framing this is what does it mean if we eventually have the Borg uh, for politics um, will the Borg get one vote or a million votes Will we be able to coexist with the Borg? Uh, will, we be, will we truly be able to coexist when there are some people who have uh, a thousand times more cognitive capacity than others, uh, even if that's the result, result of individual uh, free choices, um, which it may be, um, will we be able to coexist in one society and how would we have accountability between uh, groups within that society? So those are questions that um, I don't think the techno-progressive agenda can address yet. We're just trying to make sure everyone has egalitarian and safe access to good technology that we see coming down the pike and that it doesn't destroy the planet. Um, that will make sure that we can then begin to answer these next set of questions that uh, neurotechnology really uh, poses. Yeah, I, I think that, uh, how, do I, how do I put this? I mean, it's hard enough to get consensus now, right? <laughs> so when we, we imagine a future with this wild diversity of, you know, possibly artificial beings or upgraded animals. And, and you're talking about, you know, literally just different strains of personality and hacking your personality and, 
and, and like individuals and hive minds coexist different the brain types yeah. and augmented beings and non-augmented beings it just becomes you know head spinning like how do you get consensus with that group right i'm reminded of the like uh, par- the parliament scene in like uh, the newer star wars movies right where yeah. like palpatine walks out um, to give him a speech or something and you just pan over the like endless rows of of little pods that each one contains a senator you know and you just think about the utter cacophony and think about how much gridlock we have now we may need a new kind of political organization entirely to deal with a world of that much complexity it's a really interesting thought to end on thanks very much for joining us today um we'll obviously link to iet and if there's anything else you want us to link to on the post we'll do that yeah i want to i mean probably a lot of our listeners know about the ieet but i really want to encourage people to check out that website because you guys really do a fantastic job of keeping that thing updated and a very active blog there and, and a lot of articles uh expressing a lot of different points of view great thank you yeah thanks very much for uh, being on the show So thanks uh, for listening to our episode with Dr. James Hughes. I just want to remind everybody that we could use your help with iTunes ratings or Stitcher ratings or... Yeah, however you're listening to the podcast, if you could just take five seconds and uh, give us a a rating and a review, it'd mean a a lot to us. We've gotten, um, I think, about 20 so far, and we'd love to have 20 more. If uh, if you're out there and you're listening, it, it really does help us a lot. And if you don't mind sharing uh, this episode on your Facebook or Twitter feed or, or however you like to share things, uh, that'd be great too. And uh, you can always contact us via Twitter. We're at RTF underscore podcast or at uh, feedback at reviewthefuture.com. And uh, we'd really love to get mail from people. And we'd love to start maybe addressing some of that on the show. So. Uh, especially if you're finding things you disagree with in this episode or even previous episodes. Yeah, or if uh, you can think of a topic you'd like us to cover. Sure. Um, we're always looking for new ideas. So uh, by all means, send us a message, uh, a tweet, an email. Uh, we also have a Facebook page now, which is facebook.com slash review the future. So if you'd like to get updates via Facebook instead of all those other ways, uh, you can do that as well. And we're just going to keep churning out episodes. So join us uh, in two weeks. In two weeks, we'll have something new for you. Thanks for listening. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening.